You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're still in First Samuel. Just got done with the weird, well... We aren't even done with it. We're not it. even done with the weird part. We're, we kind of landed in an awkward place last time, but it, it kind of worked narratively. So, Well, it's, it's a long story, and the fact that it is such a long story means breaking it up for an, for an episode makes it kind of challenging. So, yeah, you know, if you, if you want to listen to this one, I just suggest at least go back and listen to the first, last two, maybe. Yeah, yeah. the last two are probably going to be your best bet. So. But, you know, hey, listen to them all and you'll really be clued in. Yeah. So, Because <laughs> the whole Bible ties together. As we're learning. So, and, and, and we knew it tied together, but man, we're really picking up on some, some interesting threads. So, yeah. Um, and and well, there's more. <laughs> there's more. And yeah, so we left off with the Philistines were, they realized that having the ark was dangerous. Mm-hmm. And they they understood that they needed to do something to get it back to the Israelites because they couldn't afford to keep it at their place anymore. Right. And they have consulted some diviners and priests in an attempt to to figure out what the proper methodology to send it home would be. And they mm-hmm. had been advised to make the the five golden tumors and the five golden mice. And that's kind of where we left it off. Um, but the the diviners actually feel like they need to drive their point home. They want people to really get why this is the right thing to do and why you need to do it. Now, I think some of this actually goes back to the fact that diviners realized that, you know, the God of Israel had totally decimated the the magicians in mm-hmm. Egypt. And they recognized that if we try to stand up against this God of Israel, what happened to the Egyptian magicians is going to happen to us. Right. And, and, and we even, yeah, we talked about that, how last episode, how the, they were kind of like going, we're not going to make the same mistake the guys in Egypt did. We are, we're Pre- done. Precisely. And that's exactly what verse six, it says, why should you harden your hearts like the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Basically, once they turned them loose, they left. You need to turn them loose. Let them go. Don't be stupid like Pharaoh was stupid. And so they, they outline a plan, and this is verses 7 through 9 in chapter 6. And the plan is basically this. You take a new cart and two milk cows, not oxen, you know, nothing that's had a yoke on it before. Right. Take the calves away from them, put the ark in the cart, and put the box in there with the golden tumors and the golden mice. Send it off, let it go its way, and just watch it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you just watch it, what this is going to tell you is whether this is really the act of Israel's God mm-hmm. or it is just coincidence. You've had some bad luck. Right. And so now what I found interesting was the milk cows, because you typically don't use milk cows to pull, and pull a cart. Right. And when you separate milk cows from calves, we've had this experience. Mm-hmm. We know what this is like. You don't get any sleep. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, milk cows go crazy when you take their babies away from them. I'm talking tear down fences, bust down gates. Mm-hmm. They, they, 
do not want to be separated. I mean, and because they are milk cows, one of the other factors that comes into play is they have been bred and, you know, not like they were are today. You know, the milk cows today have giant udders, but they still have larger, higher capacity udders. These are the cows mm-hmm. you would use for this. It's painful. It's physically painful for these cows to be separated from calves. It, so you've got the mother instinct that says, don't take my baby away mm-hmm. from me. Mm-hmm. You have the physical pain of it all, uh, you know, pushing them to, to find their babies, to find some relief for themselves. And I don't think you realize what a miracle this is unless you've dealt with that situation. Yeah, I mean, and if you don't think it's possible to feel threatened by a cow, <laughs> right. you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, our dad used to say that he would rather deal with a bull any day than an angry mama cow. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, and, you know, and I think we kind of know, oh, we should be afraid of bulls. Because, you know, we've seen the running of the bulls. We've seen the matadors. We've seen what happens there. And, or, right. And, and the, well, the thing about bulls, bulls generally, you'll have some of them that just have like a mean streak to them. Mm-hmm. But most bulls, unless you like train them, they actually are fairly docile. Well, I mean, we had a rodeo bull that used to show up at our 4-H events. And mm-hmm. he, we would let kids take pictures on his back because he was so calm unless he was in the ring. Yeah. And yeah, yeah unless they put the... The, the, mm-hmm. the harness on him mm-hmm. and the uh, put him in that chute. Other than that, you know, you could you could walk right on like kids would walk right underneath yeah. his feet and he wouldn't even care. Yeah. And so, yeah, not mama, under his feet, but under his his belly, his belly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Between and, his feet. Yeah. And there we go. Mama cows, though. No, you just you don't do that. And I mean, there's some mama cows that that are nicer, but you have to work with them to get them that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a uh, just where our childhood kind of helps inform some of our understanding. Right. So the thing is, the Philistines also lived with cattle. The, the Israelites lived with cattle. Mm-hmm. They understood this. So they got it. They knew without being told, this is not natural at all. And the cows bellowed all the way from Ekron to mm-hmm. Bet Shemesh. Mm-hmm. And the rabbi said that, you know, it depends on which rabbi. One rabbi, I believe it was Rashi, said that they were singing uh, songs of praise to Yahweh. And another rabbi, I think it was Malcolm, uh, Malkim, said that um, they were grieving the loss of their children. Well, I, I, I would assume that, that they were just upset that they're, they were separated from their calves because I, I guess Rashi didn't spend much time around cows. <laughs> he may not have. Because they're going to, I mean, and if you... If you've never heard a cow just bellow like that, it's... It's, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's you can hear terrible. their anguish. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I think I think we might have covered the cows. <laughs> I know. In, in their responses, but yeah. We know this one. <laughs> yeah, we, we know a lot about this one because we, we've heard them like, and they will all night, just... All night, all day. Yeah. I feel and like lowing is a bad description. It's, it's, Where, who came up with that word? It's a horrible description. So, so you know, yeah, guttural sobs might be more yeah, <laughs> cries of anguish. Mm-hmm. So, but the diviner's advice may have been based on a major festival. Um, it, it's called the Zakuru Festival of Amar. Uh, and it was one of the ways that the people worshiped Dagon. And they would put Dagon in a new cart and then they would parade him through the city. And so we know that this happened. Uh, it's not identical to what's going on here, but I mean, it is a different it's circumstance. A yeah. yeah. 
And so it sounds like what they're doing is using what they know, what they understand to be honoring a God, mm-hmm. and, and they're applying it to this God of Israel. But of course, the God of Israel, he, he doesn't want to be worshipped like other gods. He right. has a whole different set of, of rules and regulations and expectations. So um, there, there's precedent for what, they, for what the Philistines are doing. The problem is there's no precedence for, for what the, the Israelites wind up doing. And so when they load up the cart, the diviners say, you know, let it go its way. Notice, let it go its way, not let them. It's talking about the ark. Let the mm-hmm. ark decide, not the cows. Right. So the, the, the miracle power is not because you've got these cows who are, you know, somehow supernaturally gifted in finding the right place for the ark. But, it's, but the ark's going to yes. gonna, uh, reign the cows, basically. Yeah. Well, and the tradition's based on no, Numbers 10, 33 through 36. And I believe I have that mark. Yes, I do. Which was convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me be put together. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went out before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day. But whenever they set out from the camp, um, by the day, whenever they set out from the camp and whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate flee before you. And when it rested, the ark, he said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousands of Israel. So he, he's saying, Moses is saying that the ark is moving. And the tradition is, is that you don't carry the ark, the ark carries you. Hmm. And this is going to become majorly important, especially when we get to the story of Uzzah with David moving the ark, because that explains a lot of what happens there. It's another weird story. But when we get there. So the Philistines watched. This means they're following. The lords of the Philistines are following the ark through the, the wilderness to get to Bet Shemesh. Mm-hmm. Now, who follows the ark? Israelites, not Philistines. Right. So again, that, that another reversal. Now, Bet Shemesh, uh, we've had this place show up before. It's the house of the sun is what it literally means. Mm-hmm. It's an Israelite town. And we have archaeological finds. And we also have Timna. Because they're very close together. We've heard these stories from Samson's um, account. Timnas, where Samson's Philistine wife was from. Mm-hmm. So Timnas is Philistine city, and we have Bet Shemesh. There's no difference. Whenever they, they're digging down through the layers, you can't distinguish one city from the other based on the evidence that's been left behind. But this tells you that the interplay between the Philistines and the Israelites was major. Yeah. Because typically, if you have different nations, even in cities side by side, you're going to have differences. Right. And so the, uh, the but arriving at Beth, Beth Chemish is the sign that this is God's doing because the Philistines said, Hey, this is where it needs to go for us to know mm-hmm. that, that this is what's happening. Right. And so um, it's also, I think I skipped a note again. Again. Got to cut that out. I know. Okay. Maybe I bring it up later. Never mind. I, I'm, you know, I'll get there eventually. Yeah. So verse, we're professionals, we'll recover. <laughs> right. Verse 10 through 12 uh, talks about the, the Philistines, you know, they're doing what the diviners instruct. And the cows, I mean, they walk straight to Beth Shemesh. There, there's no deviation. Um, they're, they're pulling the cart. They've got everything in it. And basically the diviners plan worked. Mm-hmm. And the, the Philistines didn't harden their heart like Pharaoh. And, and they're playing both roles because it's so funny. They're, they're, they're the ones who 
get to let the ark go like Pharaoh mm-hmm. did, mm-hmm. but now they're also the ones following behind. So they're... there's. <laughs> Do you have more on that? Because there's there's got to be some more to that that I just I can't put my my it, mind on. It, you know, it, it's it's the messed up theology, and it's the fact that everybody can be anyone else in the story. That there are no distinctions between who Israel was at this point mm-hmm. and who the Philistines were at this point when Israel was called to be a holy nation. You know, they're supposed to be set apart. They aren't supposed to be like everyone around them. And the funny thing is, and I'm just, this is on the fly, the Philistines weren't like everyone around them. They, right. were, they were a different type of people. And it's interesting to see that, you know, one of the things that we do know that separates archaeology archaeological finds of the Philistines from the Israelites is the use of carts and cattle to pull them mm-hmm. because uh, the, the bones in the feet of the animals that they're digging up, the oxen they're digging up, show stress fracture and stress wear mm-hmm. to show that they had been used for heavy pulling. We don't find that in Israelite excavations. Hmm. So, you know, when you don't have a lot of distinguishers from the surrounding con- uh, communities, who are you? Right. You know, are you really that holy people? But, and that's the thing, they're, they're, the, the Philistines are doing everything that the Israelites should have done, even offering the guilt offering and saying, mm-hmm. I, you know, God deserves something. We yeah. need to show him honor some way. Or yeah, do- that, 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 that was interesting to me is they knew to, to offer a guilt offering. I mean, and it may not have been the correct one. Right. But it's what they knew. But, it, but they did. Yeah. I have so many more questions about this and hopefully some of them will get answered by the time we're done here but wow i mean it's so weird when you think about the implications of it and the fact that you know this is not going to be the last time it happens because i think we even see a retelling of this and i didn't go into it uh but i think we see a retelling of this with the wise men Mm -hmm. the diviners there who show up with these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these were gifts that you would have given to other foreign gods from their lands, not necessarily that you would have given to God if you were an Israelite. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and those gifts are accepted. So I think there's a place within, um, within God's theology that says, if you're doing the best you know how to do, then there's a certain level of honor that he will allow to be extended to that. Now, once you know better, you need to do better. And that's why right. the Israelites keep getting in trouble because they know better. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's the problem is so often people who know better think, oh, well, everybody else is you know, kind of being lackadaisical about their worship or they're just doing what's popular. So we can do that. If you know better, no, you're called to a, to a higher standard. Right. So yeah. anyway, but also during this whole time, God hasn't spoken. The Israelites haven't spoken. Samuel hasn't spoken. The only people who are talking are the Philistines. Right. And yet we are still acutely aware of God's activity through all of this. And we, we realize that God is sovereign, not only in Israel, he's sovereign in the land of the Philistines, and he's sovereign in the house of Dagon. Mm-hmm. And so the, the story really does elevate God beyond any God of, of that time, time period or that geogra- geographical location. There we go. So, uh, but mostly he's the only one who's been consistent with his nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's the only one who's remained true to himself and who he's supposed to be. And that's what is kind of mind blowing is that, you know, the Israelites have adapted Philistine practices. They've integrated into the society and the Philistines 
they, they've accepted them in, and we can see how far the integration has gone because the Philistines know the Israelites' stories and their theology and how things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so unless you're really a part of a society, can you impact leadership that much? Right. So that's rather telling. But the, the fact that we, we've got all these crossovers, and it, it reminds us that we need to be careful today are we just like everybody else? Right. And I, I think that's the takeaway for us. But anyway, there's still some more. But verse 13, now the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping the wheat harvest in the valley. These are the Israelites. And when they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Now, the Israelites who are at Bet Shemesh, they were out working the fields. I mean, the Philistines have conquered their God. Mm-hmm. They have no protection. They have no security left. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at any point in time, the Philistines can return. They can try to take over. What are they going to do? And so when, you know, they hear these cows coming, making all of this racket, you know, you have to wonder what's going through their, their minds. And they look up. And here's the symbol of God's presence, the, the source of their national identity, and it's coming towards them. And not only that, these Philistine lords are following behind, you know, the, the vanquished, he, vanquished heroes or enemies of God, mm-hmm. trailing uh, as this kind of royal entourage mm-hmm. to their God. Yeah, now uh, he's parading them back. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> and so, you know, yes, they rejoice. It's the only proper thing to do. But I think what we forget is these people have never seen the ark before. This is the first time they've seen it. Yeah. And so how do they know what it is? I think that's kind of interesting in and of itself. I mean, surely they'd heard descriptions, they'd learned the Torah, so they knew mm. that w- what the general shape should be, but other religions also... Well, news probably would have been out that, <laughs> hey, the ark's missing. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, seven months, that's time for word to get around. Right, right. Well, and seven months, it's the time for God to intervene and say, hey, you know, let's change some things. Yeah. The ark's missing. It's a box about yay big. It's got, you know, I mean, people are probably on the lookout for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the, the and also Bet Shemesh, and this is why I thought I'd missed, it, it's a Levitical city. It, okay. It's, um, it had been set aside for the Kohath clan, the family that was in charge of caring for the ark, and, and that's in Numbers 4, verses 4 and 15, uh, yeah, verses 4 and 15. Mm-hmm. And, and Beth Shamish uh, was a designated home for the descendants of Aaron specifically. So Joshua 21, 3 through 16 explains all of that. But it's an important detail that this is the, a Levitical city of the home of the Levites charged to care for the ark. Yeah. Because this is going to help us understand what's getting ready to happen. These people knew better. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the thing. These people knew. There's no excuse for, for what they do. So verse 14 and 15, you know, the, verse, the cart stops in the field of Joshua. This is probably the same field as the one where the angel appeared to Samson's mother. So okay. we have that, that tie back there. And there's a great stone there. And we think maybe this was the same stone that Manoach offered the sacrifice on when the angel of the Lord was talking to them. Okay. And the, the people 
take the ark, they dismantle the, the, the cart, and they use it for firewood. They slaughter the milk cows, and they use them for a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And in case you, you haven't realized it yet, all of this is extremely problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the proper place for a sacrifice? Now, there's an argument there's no official place for worship, but we know that's not true because Samuel has set up four different cities where people can go and, and worship. Mm-hmm. So the fact they did not wait and take it to one of those places, you know, why, why aren't they calling for Samuel? What do we do? How do we handle this? What does God want us to do? Mm-hmm. They, they do what they think is right. And, and the then, fact that is Levites makes it even pres- more of an offense. Exactly. And, you know, using the cart uh, as firewood, that's kind of questionable, especially if it was some kind of sacred cart used for the worship of another god. Mm-hmm. You do not offer up cows as a sacrifice. You can offer up bulls. You can offer up heifers. But once they've had their calves, they're off limits. Right. And so that's a problem. You don't use outside sources, uh, outside animals mm-hmm. for sacrifice. That's right. Leviticus 1. It's to be from your own flock. Precisely. Now... Um, that's done in order to make sure that these animals had never been dedicated as a, a sacrifice to another god. So in other words, they weren't letting them grow up and have a better sacrifice instead of uh, offering a calf. Right. And it's also because some of these, these ancient rituals involved you know, bestiality. And so you don't want an animal that's been participated, you know, been used in that practice. Mm-hmm. So you've got to protect the sacrifice of the Lord. You only bring those things that are pure and sacred and holy and unblemished. And unblemished isn't just a physical um, condition, but having not been traumatized. Sure. So the, um, the rabbis, of course, they, try, they tried to kind of smooth this out. And they tried to smooth it out by saying that the sacrifice wasn't the Israelite sacrifice to God. This is actually the Philistines' sacrifice to God. And so the Israelites were giving it on behalf of Yahweh. I, there's still a problem there mm-hmm. because if what they should have done is said, if they thought it was the Philistine sacrifice, they should have said, we can't offer this. Right. You know, if you want to make the sacrifice, we can't stop you, fine. But at the same time, we can't participate in it. And so I think there's, there's a problem with that explanation. And I, I don't think it's completely accurate either. So, uh, you know. Well, I, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of question, questionable thoughts in there. <laughs> well, and, you know, the, then you also have the problem with, do you set up these golden images next to God? Right. It's kind of the reversal of what the, the Philistines did with God in Dagon's temple. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they set up God next to Dagon. God's very, very specific about the things that he wants in his presence. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the tabernacle and temple both, it's very interesting. The things that are closest to him, yeah, they are gold, but he has determined what they are and he set the parameters for what they should be. Mm-hmm. And then as you move out, you get to silver and then you get to bronze and then you get... You know, and so you, you there's a progression outwards from the ark, mm-hmm. and the um, the idea that you would actually set these things next to God is it's offensive. Right. It, it's offensive, and so, <clears throat> but then the in verse fifteen we find out that the Levites 
performing these acts and they're making the these sacrifices, but they they place the ark on a rock. And God's given very specific instructions about how the ark should be treated. Mm-hmm. And the um setting this on an ark on a rock is a problem. And we're going to talk about why that is in just a second, but verse 16 notes that the Philistines they go home and they return to Ekron. You know, Ekron's the, the closest Philistine city. And basically what happens next, I can, in my mind, this is how it plays out. It's God going, you know, all that stuff you thought you were doing that was so cute while the company was here. Well, they've left. And this is when daddy's going to, you know, bring down the hammer on the kids for mm-hmm. misbehaving because it's exactly what what happens now verse 17 and 18 the writer kind of pauses to give us an overview uh, of what elements are in play and many um in translators and interpreters believe that this is a later edition and that it's there for the clarification of the reader now zamura offers a different view he sees this as a list of formulaic kind of list and we find it in genesis 2 4 but we also find it in ugaritic uh economic text and so the, the list that we're given is each city gave one golden tumor, and we knew that, and then one golden mouse. And each city, this is the walled cities, and the surrounding villages of town. So the, it's not just this, the city, but it's the walled city represents the, the major hub for each district that's there. And so the lords had made a payment on behalf of the cities. They're trying to redeem the cities. Mm-hmm. So. Where Zamora thinks that the, you know we're we're talking about the list to show that this is a ceremonial observance for the Philistines that this is a holy act for them, and they they are trying to honor God a, as thoroughly as they know how. Right. So, anyhow, verse eighteen b: the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So, this is a crazy difficult verse. <clears throat> Because, you know, we're in Samuel and we haven't had any major textual problems yet. So we've okay. got we to have a few. If we don't have a few, we're not reading Samuel. It's, um, in Hebrew, it's Abel Hagadol, Adola, Hagadola. I actually know how to read Hebrew. I just don't always know how to say it. Um, in the uh, Greek, it's Litho to Megathu. So, Megalu, um, sorry, Megalu. can't read my own writing. I need to slow down my right, right Greek. Lithu to Megalu. Uh, Rashi translates this to mean this, the great mourning. He, he, kind of, he kind of leaves the stone part out because Abel is very close to the word for mourning or stone. It just depends on which vowels you use. Mm. There's no other mention of a stone of Abel or stone of mourning in the text. Uh, you can't find any reference to it outside of this verse. And that's why most... Sorry, most translators follow the, the Septuagint translation, which is the great stone. Zamora argues that the most natural translation is the platform of Abel and points to other stones like the stone of Ezel and the stone of Ezer, which we also find in Samuel. So it makes sense in my mind that the, you know, there's something going on with the text, but we should follow the, the pattern that the, the writer of Samuel has given us. I don't see any reason to break that. So. Um, when people say this is a, you know, this is a discrepancy, you shouldn't, you know, trust the Bible because of this, 
it's a very small discrepancy. Mm-hmm. Do we do we look at mourning or do we do stone? It, it doesn't really matter because the the events that follow are are very similar. I mean, the, they don't change. Right. It, we're we're just talking about uh, did you use a card table or did you use the dining room table? You know, it, it's it's that kind of difference. It, okay. Does it does it change any sort of um, uh, of significance to to what's happening? And it, and it doesn't. And we do know that we have a temple site here. We can, as far as archaeology finds, we can look at this and find that there's a temple. It has a very large rock in it. Is it the same rock? We don't know. Okay. But it is, yeah, exactly. It's interesting um, because we have no reason to think specifically it is, but we don't have a reason to think specifically that it's not. So a great stone is a witness to this day. Of course, this reminds us of Joshua 24, 37. Behold, the stone shall be a witness against us to this day. Uh, that when Joshua was talking, this is the covenant renewal. This takes us um, back to that ceremony at Shechem, mm-hmm. where they had entered into the nation. They're, they're getting ready to um, divvy up the, uh, the territories among the tribes. Before that, he does say, okay, we need to go back over what God expects from us, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we're going to do it right here. So this was a location where God had specifically reminded Israel, these are your duties and obligations. You want to be blessed, you do these things. Mm-hmm. You want to be cursed, you do the, those things. And if you want more about the stones and the significance of them, go check out our Navel of the Earth um, episode. episode. Yeah. So, um, but the, the point is, these stones often could be conduits of judgment. Okay. And because, you know, they're the connectors between heaven and earth. So verse 19, but he struck some men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. More translation issues. Who's he? We have no antecedent. We, we don't know what the proper, 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 what the proper <laughs> pronoun for, for he is. Um, so the last active noun we have is the stone, which acts as a witness, and the Ark of the Lord, which has been wreaking ha- uh, havoc on the Philistines. It could be equally proper to translate it, it that, he str- that it has struck some of the men, but the next line does kind of clarify that the Lord struck the people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when you have um, another person or another thing, and then the mention of the Lord, it's God moving through that item. So, or, you know, uh, God moving through that person, you know, like with Samson, God rushed upon Samson and, and did Samson kill the Philistines or did God kill the Philistines? Right. You know, it, it's kind of a joint thing. So, it's reasonable to think that this is a um, that this is a joint effort where God is either using the ark or the rock as a means of judgment. And based on the the story of Uzzah, which we're going to get to, um, you would think that it's going to be the ark because God does use that to to destroy people. Um, the numbers are difficult. We've got a major discrepancy between the Masoretic and the Septuagint. Several. Um, different possible proper translations. And so we can have 70 men or 50,000 and 70 men. Either way, 70 men dying by supernatural means is going to get your attention. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 50,000 is going to wipe out your whole city. Right. So we don't know. And that's a large city for that day. 
massive because when you think of the amount of resources to to support a group of people mm-hmm. and that you know it, it would have been a huge city so we really don't know uh based on the text we can kind of you know like you know discussing it and looking at, at what was actually possible uh numbers wise for bet shemish to to still function you know you kind of lean toward the toward the 70 but at the same time, the, the numbers in the Bible are often more symbolic than they are literal. So this is a, you know, whatever happened, a significant portion of their population mm-hmm. was destroyed. Yeah. And, you know, God's gotten their attention. Uh, now he, he's plagued the Philistines and he's killed Israelites. Notice the, the difference there. He plagues the Philistines and he kills Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, this shows his grace to those who don't know any better. This shows that he's willing to, you know, he'll do as much as is necessary to get people to do what he needs them to do. Mm-hmm. And then whenever you cross that line from obedience to disobedience, and whenever you know how to behave, then that, that's where the serious consequences come in. And because, again, this is a city of the Levites, mm-hmm. specifically those Levites who know how to take care of the Ark. and. So the, you know, what was their treatment of the ark? The the problem that's happening here, the Bible specifically says they looked at it. Mm-hmm. Now you would think, well, how could they avoid looking at it? You know, I don't think they could. Right. You know, it's coming over the hill with these cows making all these this racket. I mean, you're you're definitely going to look at it. But the problem is nobody moved to correct the situation. Because only the, the, the sons of Aaron were allowed to see the ark. And that's Numbers 4, 5 through 6. And it describes this elaborate wrapping ceremony that goes on. That, so first you take the veil mm-hmm. and you wrap the ark in it. And then you take goatskins and you wrap the ark in that. And then you put a blue cloth over all of that. So you've got three layer, layers of covering mm-hmm. over the ark before it's taken outside of the tabernacle. Right. And only the sons of Aaron are allowed to do this. Matter of fact, the priests that carry the ark, if they even see it, they could die. And that were, that, uh, those priests that carry this were the Kohathites, the ones who mm-hmm. lived at Beth Shemosh. And that's Numbers 4.15 that says they don't get to look. Mm-hmm. And so they, sh- they knew that the one thing that they should have had drilled into their heads since the time they were itty bitty as you don't look at the ark. Right. And so now they take the ark. Not only do they, they, not only do they look, they, they put it on this rock and they put it on display. Mm-hmm. And so now they're saying, not only are we looking at the ark, the people are looking at the ark. They mm-hmm. aren't supposed to look at the ark because you don't see God's glory. You don't, Look on that face to face unless you are someone who's been invited in, like a Moses or a Samuel. Right. And so, verse 20. The men of Bet Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, his holy God? And whom shall he go up? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? This is almost like a joke. Because mm-hmm. remember where this started with Dagon? Uh, he, he keeps getting knocked over. Mm-hmm. And so it, who's going to stand? Now, we, we know that that means, you know, who could possibly resist. And But the thing is, the Israelites are unintentionally equating themselves with Dagon by making that statement. Mm-hmm. And that 
says something, they're starting to, to get a clue about their behavior. But then they, they start looking for places to send it. They, they send messages to Kirith Jerim and saying the Philistines have returned. This is verse 21. They've returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it with you. It's the same thing the Philistines did. We, we can't have it in Ashdod. Uh-huh. We got to send it to Gath. We're going to send it to Ekron. And you know, and, and I'm going to throw this out here as kind of speculation, because I, I, I kind of thought of, is it not so much just that they looked at the Ark, but they looked at the Ark as a source, as their source of power. Like, hey, this is where God's delivered the Ark to us. We get to be in charge now. And so they decide to, hey, well, it's here. Let's let's see if we can sacrifice to the Lord, and then we get to be in charge. We're going to make the most of it while we got the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And so I kind of wonder if it was not just that they looked to it as they looked at it, but maybe looked to it. I don't know if there's, if that's a translation that's possible, but I, that's kind of what I was wondering, if that was kind of the thing that was going. Well, I, I think that's a very plausible explanation just based on human nature. And, you know, I, the text doesn't refute that idea. Um, it, the only thing it does say is that they looked at it and mm-hmm. that's a problem. And, you know, we do know that treating the Ark as this kind of magical thing that, that can as, be... As a- well, the good luck charm yeah. idea, like like how they lost it in the beginning. Exactly. And then and then you have the Philistines taking, okay, well, now we've got the power of Israel's <laughs> gods. And they and and then they find out, no, you don't. And then you take it to this other village of, of Israelites who are again supposed to know better, and they're like, Oh, well, now we've got it. Yeah. And so right. it, and I think it's it, it, and if that's the case, then it would make sense to me of this series of God going, you don't get to be in charge. <laughs> you know, this isn't the magic call button. You right. Know, it's- well, and, and that's, that's Israel's problem. They, they want to do that. They want to go do their own thing until they're in trouble. And then they want to send up the bat signal. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, it's before that, they're just, you know, we're going to, we can get by. And as long as they can get by on their own steam, they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And so when they do need God, they don't know how to properly approach him because they haven't fostered that relationship. Where, you know, there's a difference between going home to dad whenever you've been there every weekend and all the holidays and you made phone calls and asked for some help, you know, to ask him for some help in that situation versus mm-hmm. I haven't spoken to him in three years and now I need 20000 to save my house. Right. You know, and that's, that's the thing. They're waiting until they have no other options and yeah. they're only doing the barest lip service. That, you know, they're, they're sending a Christmas card or you know, an e-card at the most to God. They aren't actually engaging in that relationship. And they're really hoping that the priests are doing their duties so they can just go on and do their, you know, go about their business. But we know that the priests aren't doing their duty because the last priest we had were Hofni and Finkas. Mm-hmm. And God mm-hmm. just said, I'm not going to deal with them anymore. I'm taking them out of the picture. Right, right. So, you know, the nation really is in trouble. And this is part of why remembering that this is happening in the time of the judges is so important because the nation is messed up. Right. So we don't have any major um, explanation for why they choose to send the ark to Kirith Shirim. Um, now, in Joshua 15, 9, uh, the name of the city is Bela. It's the, it's the same city. It's just a different name. And in 15 verses six, um, it's Kirith Baal. 
So this helps with the dating of the writing of the book when right. we have those, those kind of name changes. And of course, this, the names in Joshua connect the city to the worship of Baal. So that right. kind of made us go, hmm. It sounds like what happened is they came in when they took over and they conquered Canaan. They, they set it up as their own kind of spiritual center, an Israelite spiritual center, because there does seem to be something significantly spiritually uh, significant spiritually about the city dating back for centuries. Mm-hmm. So verse one, and then we're going into chapter seven. And the men of Kirith Jerim came up and took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to the house of Abinadad on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And so no, no genealogy is given. We, we don't know who he is uh, about Abinadad or about Eleazar. Uh, Abinadab. Abinadad. Um, yeah, they work. Uh, you, you put the emphasis on the last syllable with the Hebrew. Well. So, dab, dab, dad. It yeah. ends with a B. Yeah. Which probably would have been a V in Hebrew. Eh, it would have been a D. But anyway, I need to stop writing my own notes because yeah. <laughs> I need like, to like, type these up. The, it ends with a, with, a, with a B. Yeah. Okay. So we're there. <laughs> so, but Eleazar. <laughs> Eleazar is a common priestly name. Aaron had... Uh, a son by this name. So this is probably some of Aaron's... family name? Mm-hmm. Probably some of Aaron's sons. We don't have that specifically pointed out, but it's a logical conclusion. Um, but it also connects us back to the story of Micah and the Levite, because Micah ordained his son to serve in his shrine. But the words are different. And this is another reason we think that it's okay, because when Micah ordained the Levite to serve in his shrine, he literally filled his hands. And yeah. here, Eleazar is consecrated. Consecrated, Kadash. He, it's uh, built on the word for holiness. Yeah. So the, it's not, I'm paying you off so that you can, you know, fulfill this role. Because again, when the, with the other Levite, the fake Levite shows up or the unfaithful Levite shows up, uh, Micah filled his hand once again, and then when the tribe of Dan shows up, they fill his hand again. Mm-hmm. And so this this has nothing to do with bribery or payment. This has actually to do with his condition as a person. That it's he, more of a uh, purifying type mm-hmm. of thing. So where one is giving, this one is taking away. Yeah, actually, I mean, if- yeah, no, that's that's good because that. But what it shows us is this seems to be the proper way to go about it, mm-hmm. where Micah was doing it improperly. And so we also believe that this is okay because of verse 2. From that day that the ark lodged with Kirshirim a long time past, there were 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 20 years, the ark's there, and it's staying with Eleazar and his family. Mm-hmm. But there's no major disasters. We don't have any plagues. Nobody's dying. They don't seem to be ready to get rid of it. So we think that they understood that that this is how they were supposed to treat the ark, and God was okay with it, because the ark's actually going to remain here until David comes to retrieve it, to take it back to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we get into the story of, of Uzzah. But again, we're going to wait till we get there. Fascinating story. And um, the, the, the country's lamenting after it, because... You know, it's not in a public place of worship anymore. It's not someplace that's easily accessible to the masses. And mm-hmm. so 
this really serves to heighten their, their desire to be near the Lord. It, it's really not any better for them than when the Philistines did have the ark. So, the... Okay. Well, I mean, because... I mean, yeah, I, I, it makes sense. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, well, no, I wouldn't have either, because I mean, like, well, it's back in the country, but if, if what your uh, hypothesis is correct about when it sh- arrives at Beth Shemesh, you know, we have it, so we're in power. Now, nobody has the power because it's this person keeping it in their home that they are not allowing the, the public access. It doesn't seem to be. Now, there could be, but the Bible never notes that there's worship going on at this place. It, it just seems to be staying there. Yeah, and that does seem really weird. It's like, oh, let's, let's put it in this house. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's the government warehouse. <laughs> We're gonna... I, was, I was thinking, can you put the ark, do you, do you have space in your garage? Like that's that was my thought when we're putting it in someone's house. Yeah, just can you hang on to this while we're between moves and once we settle into our new place and you know, and pretty much that's what's happening because we Shiloh's been destroyed mm-hmm. and so the temple in Jerusalem hasn't been built yet. So you know, yeah, that analogy actually really works. I mean, I mean, no disrespect by that. It just that's. Well, we aren't talking about the like ark. We're talking about the people's attitudes, right? And so that's. You know, the people's attitudes can be terribly disrespectful and we can, and that has nothing to do with what we think about God's manifestation or God's person. Right. So Zemura notes that the Ark is first taken into battle and then the, the Philistines take it from the battle. And he suggests that the author is drawing attention to a lack of respect shown shown to the ark and because now it's taken to kirith shirim it's still being taken and so we've got this little puzzle going on and if you remember i think it was last episode i said there's going to be nine times that there's a two-word combination that's going to going to be seen Mm -hmm. and um it's kind of hard to see in the esv so you know i didn't really help anybody out the english thing yeah yeah, yeah, because the ESV, they translate the word lechak uh, as captured. Uh, it's not, it's usually not translated that way. It is, it is taken. And we see that word in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God took the wives of men, you know, mm-hmm. among whom they chose. It's a loaded, loaded word when you start talking in, in biblical language. Um, so the... You know, when Samara points this out, and he never really offers any kind of good uh, explanation. He just notes that, that so often in this story, when we started back in, was it chapter 4 mm-hmm. uh, through 7, verse 2, that taken an ark of God, just they keep showing up throughout. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, it, it, they show up in really high concentrations um, when the birth of Eli's grandson, Ichabod. Uh, the ark was taken, the glory of the Lord has taken. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's found in that woman's voice again. And so the fact that the woman is saying, so we begin, uh, it, this, this is all set my wheels to turning. So I want to say before I go into this, this is an Emily theory. I haven't found anybody teaching this. And Zamora just kind of alerted me that there might be something here, but I haven't found anybody teaching against it. And I, I, I got all excited about this. So okay. we're going to have to kind of do a little uh, rabbit trail to get to where I think we're going. Okay. Um, remember where we started with the story. We sto- started with Hannah 
and Hannah's protesting the abuses against women specifically within the, the, the temple conflict. Yes. And, you know, we know that Hannah may have possibly known the, the concubine that was killed in Gibeah uh-huh. and that, you know, she was definitely related to her on some level, how much she knew her or how well she knew her is the matter of debate. Um, she prophesied about the, the fall of the ruling house of Shiloh. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the story also connects back here. We, we, talk, we kind of alluded to it some, that Sarah is taken by Pharaoh. And that Pharaoh, uh, not only Pharaoh, but also Abimelech. So we've mm-hmm. got that, that connection. Abimelech is the king of the, Philist, uh, the Philistines. And so we've got the, that word taken used in conjunction with women again, with Sarah twice, Pharaoh and then Abimelech. Mm-hmm. And we got Rebecca also taken by Abimelech, once again, the king of the Philistines. We have the 200 women taken at Shiloh by the Benjaminites. And we have um, the 400 women taken at um, the other city, whose name escapes me right now. So anytime we have take and women together, it, it kind of makes you set up and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, the Ark has always lent itself to feminine symbolism within Judaism. And there, there's a lot of discussion about how much feminine symbolism goes along with the Ark. Okay. And so um, the, I can't, could not find a lot of writing on this specifically because so often what happens when you start talking about this, you kind of slide off into the God has a wife theory. Right. And that causes problems. And I didn't Which want... Which is really funny because I was, I was like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, I'm going to see how carefully she works this, make sure we aren't promoting that. Yeah. No, well, here's the thing. In Genesis 127, it says that God created male and female in his image. Mm-hmm. So God's image encompasses both male and female. It, it's larger. It transcends male and female. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea of God having one specific sex in the, his infinite being it is not, it, it, it's not in keeping with that biblical picture we find in Genesis 1. Now, of course, we do have pronouns, and we have Father God. And these things, but then we have a lot of feminine imagery with God that often gets overlooked, you know, like he's, he's the mother bird brooding over his nation and mm-hmm. children. So we, we recognize that there are these feminine elements about God. I'm not saying God, you know, it's not about sex. It's not about gender. It's about the fact that God is bigger than mm-hmm. any limitation we might, might want to put on him. And that includes these kinds of labels. Right. So, um. But when we go back in history, we, we look at people like Philo. Philo, uh, who lived you know, right around the time Jesus was born, he suggests that the cherubim on the ark were male and female. And when I talked about, you know, we have the cherubim specifically referred to in the opening part of the story twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Talmud also makes the suggestion, and Rashi does too. So we've got the male and female representation here. Um, I think that's really interesting. Uh, now, these aren't real good sources for proof that this is what's going on because none of these guys actually saw the Ark. Sure. So I want to point right. that out. But the language about the, the cherubim in the Bible is muddled. Uh, there's disagreements between the Masoretic and the Septuagint text about, you know, are the cherubim male or female? And uh, I'll give just one example of that. 
Ezekiel 28, 14. It says, you were an anointed cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones on fire. You walk. Now, we know that this is the passage that a lot of people talk about Satan with in the fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, I picked it because the you there, you were an anointed cherub. That's female. That's feminine. It's, it's female in gender. Okay. Now, all of the suffixes, um, well, that's in Hebrew, that's how you tell which gender the word is. Sure. Um, and the prefixes, they're, they're, they're masculine. Mm -hmm. So, the, again, the language is muddled. It, we don't know what the gender of this being uh, that's being talked about really is. Okay. And that, that happens in a couple other places. All of the manifestations associated with the ark, clouds, fire, the Shekinah, all in the feminine form. So none of this proves that the ark is a feminine symbol of God, right. but it cracks the door for speculation. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and I want to be clear with this is speculation. So if anybody's got something that, that can refute this, prove me wrong, you know, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I think there's something here watch where I'm going with this. So if, and I, I've noticed that this is a big if, if any of this is correct, the ark is a feminine symbol of God then we have a whole new dimension to the story because it's taken by the men of its own country who were supposed to protect the Ark. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, we go back to the concubine being taken by the men of Gibeah, mm -hmm. the women at Shiloh, the uh, women uh, at the other city. And so the Levites in all of these stories, they're major participants. It's the Levites who actually carry the Ark into battle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the um, Levite who threw his concubine out to the wife of Gibeah. Mm -hmm. And so we have that, that active participation of, of the Levites. The elders devise and approve the plan in both situ in, in all the situations. They said, hey, the, the tribe of Benjamin, they need brides. So we're going to kidnap these 600 women, take them, and give them to them. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who advise and approve of the plan to send the Ark into the battle. So we've got that connection. But we also have another interesting uh, connection. Verse 4, and this was in chapter 6, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. The only time we have hands on the threshold of a door was in Judges 19, mm -hmm. verse 27. Right, right. And the concubine was lying at the house of the at the house with her hands on the threshold. Mm. Yeah. Note that the hands of Dagon are cut off. And so that's the same word that we use when making a covenant. Mm. Now, the the um the concubine, she was cut up in the same way that one offers a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So, but there's still the idea of cutting in both situations, and we have that connection with the hands on the door. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, doesn't end there. So, when the, the ark is returned and the Levites place it on the rock, God kills all these men for looking at it. Now, remember when the ark traveled, it was supposed to have the veil, the goatskins, and the blue cloth, three layers of covering. Now, we're going to presume. And I think this is a major presumption, given Hophni and Finkas, that they covered the Ark up before they took it into battle. Right, right. Who knows? Um, but if that was the case, somebody uncovered it, most probably the Philistines. Right. And that's a horrendous act. You don't uncover 
the ark. Mm -hmm. And when the Israelites put the ark on the rock, it's naked. Mm -hmm. And to, to put God's nakedness on display, what a horrible violation of him. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. this should. And I think now as I'm talking, because I didn't think about this earlier, reminds me of Noah whenever he gets drunk and it's talking about him naked and, mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. of, and you know, Ham and uh, not Ham, sorry, Shem and Japheth, you know, they, they walk backwards with the covering to cover the right. nakedness of their father. Um, Ham is the one who leaves his father displayed or the nakedness of his father. That's a whole other discussion, right. but that shows you what the proper response to the father's nakedness being on display should be. Right. And so the fact okay. that, yeah. And, and when we think about the concubine, her body was put on display. It was cut up and sent across the nation. Her nakedness was on display. And the, the, the fact that there's so many similarities in all of these stories and all of the women who were taken, their nakedness was uncovered. So this is, this is huge because what I'm seeing is Whenever God gets ready to move on behalf of a, of a people and he's getting ready to, to release people from oppression, he enters into their suffering. Mm-hmm. He becomes a part of the, the system that has caused the, the, the abuses, the ones that have caused the damage and been the ones afflicting his servants. And as he enters into that suffering with them, then he moves from within the system to change it. And he does it in these explosive ways. And I think we kind of see a... Uh, uh, foreshadowing that of that with Jesus, uh, it's foreshadowing what Jesus does because what does Jesus mm-hmm. do? He enters into mm-hmm. the human condition, and I think in this story, what we're seeing is God entering into the suffering of those women and and allowing Himself to have the same experience, and then moving to avenge the the wrongs that have been done to them and mm-hmm. to change the the entire the entire structure of the nation so that this is not going to happen again. Right. And so I, I love that because, you know, all of this happens for one major reason. It's to remove Shiloh as the central place of worship. And it also, when he wipes out, whether it's 70 or 50,000 priests, mm-hmm. they're at Bet Shemesh, the city of priests, 70 to 50,000 priests, He's cleaning house. Yeah, yeah. He's not just saying, okay, well, I've given everybody a slap on the wrist. He is actually upsetting every power structure of the nation. And he's doing it because the nation has dared to treat him like they have been treating the women. Hmm. And that's, you, you don't do that. You don't treat the women that way. And you don't you don't treat God that way. Right. And like I said, I think we see, we see the story told again. You know, we've got a woman who has a supernatural birth. So Hannah, but also Mary, we have this manifestation of God within, um, within the community. It's mm-hmm. a physical manifestation. We have the ark, we have Jesus, we have the entering into the, the suffering and the abuse. We've got those elders. So you know, we're, we're mm-hmm. and who, who turns over Jesus to the Romans? It's the elders. Mm-hmm. Once mm-hmm. again, Jesus, he's hung naked on the cross. He's put up on display, mm-hmm. a bloody display, just like the concubine was. Mm-hmm. And it, when it looks like 
there's been a defeat and there's no coming back. It's in the midst of that defeat, in the midst of his death and his violation, that the prophecies are fulfilled. Right. And so we have that same conundrum. Can we as Christians, can we as people in 2020 look back and go, and, well, and just wrestle with that question, how does a dying God still have power? How does a dead God have power? Mm-hmm. And then to allow ourselves to be surprised with his return and the way he, he does redeem and restore those who want to, to join with him in this covenant community. And so that's, that's my speculation on how the story uh, kind of ties back into the past and into the future. And I think it makes sense more about why so many men had to die at Beth Shemesh. And it wasn't just God was being petty. Right. God was actually saying, you know, this is just a manifestation of how you treat everyone. Right. You don't right. just treat me with this level of disrespect. You have treated the women, the, mm-hmm. the ones without power, without re- with that kind of disrespect. And in Samuel, what we find so often is those who are marginalized and those who, who don't have power, these are the ones that God is going to raise up. These are the ones he's going to use, and he's going to turn everything on its head. So Hannah being able to pray that prayer, have a powerful God respond to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we know that God answers his prayer. That that is the beginning of the end for this systematized type of worship and religion that doesn't allow for relationship. It just tries to control God. Yeah. And God does not allow himself to be controlled. And it's only whenever the nation starts accepting God can do what he wants that we start to move into the more golden age of David and Solomon. And then, of course, we have the deterioration after that where we go right back to that same kind of mindset. Right. right. And God says, we're done. And we're going we're gonna to send you into exile, and hopefully you'll learn your lesson. So, well, that's a lot to think about. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, I see that you're out of notes, so I think I we'll pause there <laughs> um, and, and ponder that. But yeah, so that's it's definitely a lot to think about. I'll, I'll work on that and see what we can do between now and next episode. So everyone, thank you for joining us. Um, if you had a good time here, please uh, like and share this with your friends. Be part of the conversation, ravencreeksc.com or social media, Raven Creek SC. You can find us there. Search Raven Creek Social Club. You'll find something we did. Um, <laughs> good, bad, or indifferent. <laughs> and so uh, if you really liked what you heard, please uh, feel free to hit up Patreon and pass us a couple dollars. We will appreciate that. Mm-hmm. We do appreciate those who are in there already. And I do have some perks that are due I need to get sent out. So um, get sent out. if you are a patron, uh, please uh, check your messages and make sure I have your address. And uh, also, you know, <laughs> any other information I might need. So um, other than that, I think we're good here and we'll see everyone next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.